from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast Halloween special, where this month, We will be having a bit of fun with the topics for the podcast, veering off of the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Let's have some fun during Spooky Month. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Jennifer, Ariel, Elise, Chantel, Sonia, Dan, Maya, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Elena, Alethea, John, Nanette, Rachel, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, and Stacy. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. This week's podcast will be on some urban legends that I heard about coming out of a few places that sound eerily familiar to some of the horror movie villains we have come to love so much. We will start with Rhode Island. A fellow murder fam member told me about a Catholic overnight summer camp in Rhode Island near Diamond Hill Reservoir called Camp Carana. The website, thericatholic.com, states that Camp Carana is home and family for many. That, quote, once you visit Camp Carana in Cumberland, it's not hard to fall in love with the peaceful setting and the rustic cabins that are surrounded by tall trees and nestled next to a pond. The camp is said to inspire a deep devotion in most people who spend any time there, and nearly everyone uses the word family when describing the experience. The day camp is open to kids between 5 and 12 years of age, and while there, they will get to swim, go boating and fishing, play a number of sports on the athletic field, arts and crafts, and of course, attending evening mass with Father Lessard. There is an overnight camp option, and many of the volunteer staff for that were once overnight campers as well. The camp itself was founded in 1937 by Reverend Ronald Gadori in Cumberland. Over the years, the camp's programs have expanded, and it boasts maintaining its mission to help boys and girls develop physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Out of this camp or nearby areas, as the years have gone by, have come two urban legends of men who haunt the nearby forests, looking for children to hurt or kill. 
The first one is Fingernail Freddy. His story's genesis seems to have begun in the 1950s. It was said that he was a reclusive man, an introvert, who lived out in the forest of the area. He hated the camp and the noise that came from it, and he hated people, especially children. He hated them so completely that he grew his fingernails out until they were long and razor-like claws. The camp counselors would sit around the campfire and tell the children to be sure and be quiet and not wander around or else Fingernail Freddy would come and get them and claw them with his long nails. Some sources stated the legend went even further, stating that if anyone wandered into his area or property in the woods, they would be murdered. But the story of Fingernail Freddy has also been intertwined with another story about a man named Hotshot Charlie. A former camp counselor told this story, which I got from the site foodforthedead.com, which read, quote, Hotshot Charlie was a man named Charles Torrey, who lived in the area of Camp Karana many, many, many years ago. He was a homesteader with his wife and two daughters, and he had a small log cabin and plenty of fields to grow his food. And he was always troubled by vandalism from kids who would come from the city on weekends. They'd let his cows out and knock over his crops and give him a lot of grief. So Charlie finally got himself a shotgun, filled it with rock salt. The next time the kids came, he fired at them and hit them with the rock salt. Of course, it burned and hurt, and they decided to get even. They went back and set Charlie's cabin on fire while he was out in one of the barns. When he saw the flames, he went running into the cabin, knowing that his wife and two kids were in there. He tried to save them, but couldn't, and he was severely burned. His face and much of his body was so badly disfigured that he stopped going into town and became like a hermit. To get his revenge, if any kids go into the woods near his house, he kills them. Quote, he lived just a little bit north of the camp property. There's still a foundation. If you look, you can see it, all covered over and buried. No one's sure exactly where Charlie stays, but he lives in the forest. He's out there somewhere, always lurking and waiting. End quote. So, I got curious, and I began to dig around, and the only Charles Tory I could find was a man born in Massachusetts, served in a government setting in Providence, Rhode Island, and in Salem, Massachusetts, but became a very active member and worker for the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. His family didn't die in a fiery inferno either. He was arrested and imprisoned for, quote, stealing slaves, and while in prison, his tuberculosis flared up, ultimately killing him. That was the only man with that name associated with anything anywhere near Rhode Island. But, you know, perhaps that wasn't his name. But when you combine these two urban legends, Fingernail Freddy and Charles, who suffered severe burns to his face and body, 
Well, it would seem a very likely source for who we know of as Freddy Krueger now. But Freddy was actually Wes Craven's creation. He drew inspiration from several stories published in the L.A. Times about a series of mysterious deaths. All the victims had reported recurring nightmares and eventually died in their sleep. One refugee child rescued from the Cambodian genocide was terrified to fall asleep because he was convinced he would be attacked in his dreams and never wake up. As the story goes, when he finally did drift off to sleep, his parents were quite relieved and believed the issue was over. Not so. They heard screams coming from his room in the middle of the night, and by the time they reached his room to comfort him, he was dead. It was said he died during a nightmare. And he wasn't the only one. This was not an isolated incident. Actually, there were dozens of Southeast Asian refugees who had come to America only to die from an unknown cause during their sleep in the 1980s. The common theme were young men in their 20s and 30s and from a very specific area of Laos and ethnic group. So this did actually alarm public health experts who could find no medical explanation for their deaths, but rumors are that it could be chemical nerve agents that the refugee soldiers of the Vietnam War might have been exposed to, though some doctors do not support that theory. Moving on to the next area, Iowa, to be specific, we hear the story of Stanley Steers. He was said to have been born in 1912, and the night he was born, the nurse thought it would be comical if she switched babies in the nursery, ultimately sending them home with the wrong families, and of course Stanley was one of those infants. When the mothers were discharged, they took their babies, none the wiser, and went home. The legend says that Stanley's biological parents, along with the baby they took home, died in a car crash while driving home from the hospital. Somehow the Steers' parents realized that the baby they had taken home was not their baby and that, in fact, their baby had died in the crash. The nurse wound up going to prison for what she had done, but the damage was done and the Steers grew resentful of Stanley. Plain and simple, they didn't want him. This led to them abusing alcohol, which ultimately led to them abusing Stanley. Legend has it that they would lock him in his room, punishing him for the simple fact that he was not their biological son. So the parents had another baby, a girl they named Susie. She was their pride and joy, garnering all of the attention of the parents while they were still continuing to abuse Stanley. When he began school, he was bullied, and eventually his own sister joined in on the bullying of him as well. When Stanley was 11 years old, he wanted to go trick-or-treating, and it isn't surprising to learn his parents told him no. However, Susie was permitted to go to a Halloween dance. That was Stanley's breaking point. On the night before Halloween, 
1923, when Susie got back from the dance, Stanley stabbed her repeatedly with a butcher knife until she stopped breathing. He then stalked up to his parents' bedroom where they were sleeping and killed them as well. He even killed the family dog. So the next day on Halloween night, he went trick-or-treating by himself for the first time as he was enjoying his adventure, and he would cross paths with his bullies. Each bully he found, he killed them with the same butcher knife he had used on his family. Murder after murder. And when the night was done, Stanley went home. The next day, he went to school and was on the school playground, swinging and enjoying his candy. The police arrived at the school, picked him up, and took him to a private psychiatric hospital where he was studied closely for the next 13 years, but no doctor could get through. Then on Halloween night, 1936, the now 24-year-old, 6'4", big young man was being harassed by some orderlies at the hospital. Their fun was short-lived as he snapped and killed them. He then escaped the institution and the local police were alerted. He was shot multiple times in the parking lot, but he still managed to kill every officer outside and disappeared. So, does this urban legend sound familiar? While Michael Myers happens to be my favorite horror villain, John Carpenter himself has never mentioned this urban legend being part of his inspiration for Michael or the shape. So I dug around to see if there was a Stanley Steers from Iowa anywhere, but there simply isn't. I could find no record of a man by that name from Iowa. No birth or death records, no newspaper articles, nothing. There are even some rumors that Michael Myers was based on Edmund Kemper, but that isn't true either. Carpenter himself said he based the character on an experience that he had in college. Quote, we visited the most serious, mentally ill patients, and there was this kid. He must have been 12 or 13, and he literally had this look, end quote. John said that the lines assigned to Dr. Loomis in the movie was the best description of this kid. The quote from the movie is, quote, this blank, pale, emotionless face, blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil, end quote. And you can see John speaking about this on the documentary Halloween, A Cut Above the Rest. The next spot we are visiting is Finland, where a massacre occurred in the 1960s. This happens to be a true story, and as the story goes, that summer, two 15-year-old girls and their 18-year-old boyfriends went on a camping trip. They had decided to go to the isolated area of Lake Bodum, where they pitched their tents right on the lake's edge. All seemed good and well, only... The next morning, it was said that a local carpenter happened to stumble across the campsite. Something seemed off, so he unzipped the tent and looked inside, 
only to find the campers all horribly stabbed. Three were dead, but one was still alive, though unconscious. One of the boys named Nils Gustafsson. Once the police arrived on scene, Nils stated that someone had come into their tent in the dark hours of the early morning and attacked them. He described the attacker as a man dressed entirely in black with bright red eyes. But since his nearly life-threatening injuries matched up with his story, he was not considered a suspect. But as we all know, the attack was so random and with no witnesses and no really no clues, the police didn't have a good starting point. So they started down the list of suspects, one being a local man named Valdemar, who was already well known for acting aggressively towards campers. But he had a solid alibi and was quickly ruled out, though. Years later, after suffering from some serious mental health issues, he later wrote a suicide note confessing to murdering those teens. The next man they questioned, Hans, was a recent transplant to the area. He claimed to have been in Germany at the time of the murders and he was ruled out, though later evidence would show him in Finland the morning of the murders. They circled back to Nils, who was accused again 40 years later after allegedly none of his blood was found anywhere in the evidence, but he was again ruled out. And again, this story is a true one, but many in the urban legend community liken it to the story of horror legend Jason Voorhees, but alas, Jason was a character specifically created for the Friday the 13th franchise. Another story comes from Florida, and this one is also not actually an urban legend, but a very true story, and I've actually covered him. The movie Scream and its horror villain, Ghostface, is based on the true story of the Gainesville Ripper, a.k.a. Danny Rowling. I actually did a full podcast on the true story behind the movie Scream, and I'll link it in the notes if you'd like to listen, so I'll make this one more short and sweet. Danny came from a troubled childhood with a horrifically abusive father. His mother did her best to protect him and his brother from their father, but it was of no use. Danny endured endless beatings for seemingly little to no infractions, but his mother was scared to be a single mother, so we know that this was a toxic environment. At 11 years old, Danny witnessed his mother cut her own wrists in a desperate plea for help. In his teens, after a particularly horrible round of physical assault, Danny decided he had had enough and ran away to stay in some nearby woods. He began fantasizing about controlling and killing people. He graduated to being a peeping Tom and was caught and beaten. He then began torturing and killing small animals. After some roaming around with his life, he went on to begin raping women and wanting someone to murder him. He was held at a mental institution for a few months and was also in and out of prison. Towards the end of 1990, Danny landed in Gainesville, Florida, and specifically the University of Florida. He broke into apartments where young female students were sleeping. 
sexually assaulting them, stabbing them to death, then he would have sex with their remains. He was eventually captured and was executed by lethal injection in October 2006. Our next and final story takes us to Illinois and specifically Chicago's South Side. Eight-year-old Ruthie and her family moved to that area, believing it would be a wonderful opportunity, like so many others had believed. But unfortunately, that was just not the case. They were extremely poor, and as Ruthie got through one year of high school, people began to notice small signs of trouble with her behavior. By the age of 20, people around her began noticing her talking to herself, she also began randomly cussing strangers out on the street and was eventually diagnosed with, quote, residual type schizophrenia. So because of this, she had a hard time keeping steady work, but she did have a daughter and managed to raise her the best that she could. And then at 48 years old, Ruthie got an apartment through the Chicago Housing Authority, which was a public housing area. Now... After some time, Ruthie called 911, terrified, saying that people had thrown her bathroom medicine cabinet down and were coming through the wall into her apartment. The authorities couldn't really make sense of what she was saying, knowing she was mentally ill. Then neighbors reported hearing screaming and gunshots, so the police came to her door and knocked, but there was no disturbance that could be heard, and no one came to the door, so they left. Then neighbors began reporting that they hadn't seen Ruthie in a day or two, and they always saw her. So again, the police came, got no response at the door, and left. Finally, one neighbor stayed very persistent, insisting someone do a welfare check on her, so she contacted the property management who sent someone with a key. When they got the door open, they found her in her room in a pool of her own blood on the floor. She had been shot multiple times and killed, and interestingly, it was determined the murderer or murderers had gained entry through a hole behind her medicine cabinet. It was discovered that space had been made available between the apartments so that maintenance workers would have access to areas they needed with minimal interruption of the tenants. This true story was the basis behind the movie Candyman. Be my victim. Which I also have a full podcast about as well and will link in the notes below if you wish to hear the entire story. And this concludes the Urban Legends and Famous Villains podcast. There are many other urban legends that were the basis of a few other scary movies, such as Slenderman and many others. If you'd like me to cover more, please be sure to leave me a comment or DM me on Instagram and let me know. And as always, thank you so much for listening, guys, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. And I really appreciate that. Thanks so much, guys, and have a fantastic spooky season.